Welcome to C-Suite Radio. Idly hey! Welcome to another episode of The Brett Allen Show. Prepare to be astonished! A pop culture podcast. Join Brett Weekly as he interviews your favorite celebrities from film, <gasps> oh, television, I'm back in business, baby. comedy, and much more. Inconceivable! Plus, you never know who will stop by. Dude, we are so gonna party! Now, here's your host, Brett Allen. Welcome in, everybody, to an episode, another episode of The Brett Allen Show. Brought to you by the C-Suite Radio Network. We're excited today. We have a fantastic guest. Uh, here on the show, we talk to your favorite actors and celebrities from film, television, music, comedy, and more. Wherever pop culture exists, uh, you will see us there. And we are talking today with actor Sam Levine. Uh, you would most likely or probably recognize him from uh, so many amazing shows, uh, Inglorious Bastards, uh, just to name a few, and uh, he's had a really great career, and we're excited to chat with him. Sam, thanks for hanging out today. I appreciate it. <laughs> My pleasure, Red. Happy to be here, man. Yeah, well, I have to say uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while because, really, your career has spanned uh, quite a bit of time. Um, you know, of course, uh, Freaks and Geeks, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Inglorious Bastards, as we mentioned, um, mm -hmm. just to name a few. I'm very curious. Uh, what was it that interested you uh, in becoming a storyteller? What was it that lit the fire and made you go, hey, this is something that uh, I want to do and be a part of? That's a good question. The joke answer is uh, I never really wanted to get a real job. And I suppose the actual answer is uh, when I was uh, but a youngling, uh, when I was literally 10, 11 years old, I became absolutely fascinated by stand-up comedy. Okay. And so I learned as much as an 11 year old could learn about stand up comedy. And then I started doing my own stand up. Uh, and so I started doing stand up for family and friends. And I hosted my sixth grade talent show uh, when I was 12. And uh, so then all my friends saw it. And, uh, and then after that, shortly thereafter, they were all having bar and bat mitzvahs. <laughs> I and love it. And so they, a lot of them would ask me, hey, you want to tell more of those jokes you told at the talent show? And I said, sure. So I started doing stand-up at my friend's bar and bat mitzvahs. And um, a, a, a young Lisa Kudrow, who was in season one of Friends at that point, uh, happened to be the cousin of one of my friends whose bar mitzvahs oh, wow. I performed at. And she asked me after my set if I was a professional. And I said, no. She said, oh, well, you know, if you were interested, that seems like something you should pursue. You know, I was like, okay, how do I do that? She's like, ah, it's New York. Get Buy Backstage Magazine, which was, you know, the New York actor's periodical. And she's like, buy Backstage, look in the back. I'm sure you'll find someone to represent you. So I did exactly that. I bought Backstage Magazine, found an ad in the back for a, uh, a talent manager specifically looking for kids who did stand up. What are the odds? <laughs> I love it. Uh, so I called and and Sid Gold, my very first manager, uh, took me on. And first, I just wanted to get started doing stand up. You know, I wasn't really thinking about acting. Uh, so I just went in and, and started working on my act. And it was my manager who said, hey, I want to send you out on auditions also. 
And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's sort of how it started was I, I then went on an audition a couple of days later. It was the very first audition I ever went on and I booked the job. Oh, wow. Me. Um, which was crazy. So after you book the very first audition, you go on, which by the way, was a commercial for a toy that never got made. Not the commercial that got made. The toy never got made. <laughs> I love um, it. And, uh, and so that was it. And I went, oh, okay, I guess I'll do both. So for the first 10 years of my career, I was also doing stand-up comedy in addition to acting. Yeah, no, I know you've done a couple podcasts or iteration of podcasts kind of throughout your career and things like that. Um, was it because of the comedy connection that sort of helped you get in that door? Or was there a different creative side of you that kind of said, hey, I kind of want to stretch my wings a little bit. I've been doing all these great things and maybe want to try something different, but still be able to, you know, use that creative part of my brain. Sure. I mean, I think there's a lot of, um, I think there's a lot of comedians whose uh, talents don't necessarily lend themselves well to the podcast medium. <laughs> but I, don't know that I ever thought about, you know, my stand up background when I started doing podcasts, I really have to give credit to that to uh, Kevin Pollack. Yeah. Uh, and, and our God, the godfather of our OG podcast, Kevin Pollack Chacho, uh, was a guy named Jason Calcanis who had this studio space uh, available to us. And this was 2009. Jason's been uh, on the show. Well, a different version of our show. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, he, I mean, he's, I got to give credit where it's due. He's kind of, he's always a step ahead and that's a great way to get phenomenally wealthy, which he has. Um, but, uh, yeah, he was the one who saw this studio space and offered it up to Kevin and said, when do you want to do an on-camera podcast? Let's go. And I mean, podcasts certainly existed in 2009. I think I did Doug Benson's podcast for the first time in like 2007, if I'm not mistaken, but his podcast had already been around at least a year. Um, but in terms of like on-camera podcasts, like the one we are doing right now, I don't think a whole lot of people were doing them before Kevin started in, in 09. And so that was just a, uh, a case of us being pals and Kevin uh, needing two guests for his first episode. And I was happy to, to, to be there along with the other guest, by the way, was LeVar Burton. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, be, because of our friendship, because I loved what he was doing and I could see that an on-camera live streamed podcast, which is what it was when we first started, uh, needed a, a lot of help. I just started showing up, uh, every single week. Like, uh, like, uh, 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 uh who else? Uh, like Jack Black, um, and, uh, Todd Luizzo in, uh, uh, I can't believe I'm blanking on that. You know what the problem is? It's too early for me. High Fidelity. It's the name of the movie. Yes. Reasons, I hired them for four days a week. They just started showing up every day. So that's sort of what it was. Uh, I just showed up every week and I didn't have a microphone at first and I was chiming in during the interviews. And then Kevin was like, fine, take a microphone and a camera for God's sake. And then I'd like to think I you know, proved my worth over the years uh, uh, you know, as a kick in the side, as I like to call myself, and then eventually, uh, you know, recurring guest host when Kevin's uh, acting duties took him elsewhere. Yeah. But yeah, I loved podcasting. And by the time I'd started podcasting with any regularity, I was years away from having, you know, been a regular stand up performer. So 
I don't know. I think for me, it's if you're if you're good at crowd work, which not every comedian is. If you're good at crowd work, I think you'd probably be a, de- a halfway decent podcaster. But I guess it really depends what you want to talk about. I love your brutal honesty about <laughs> not every comedian lends its talent specifically to having a podcast because it's very true. But it seems kind of like, and I'm just generally speaking, like the niche thing to do. If you're a comedian, you have to have a podcast to kind of compliment. But I've had several comics on the show who have had podcasts and it didn't work out for them. So they just kind of ditched it and decided to do something else. You've had a great career. I mean, I'm just looking at your IMDb credits here and just some of the projects uh, that you have been a part of are just fascinating. I want to wind the clock back a little bit to your start. You had a appearance on... I think it was One Life to Live. That was, mm-hmm. was that your first big television appearance? And did that get you booked on uh, the other show, Freaks and Geeks? Or were there other things that happened kind of in between? So uh, One Life to Live was my first time that I was on national television. Okay. Uh, my face was. Uh, I had, I don't think I had any like scripted lines. I think I had, like I grunted. At one point, uh, that was a job that I got when I was 15, I want to say. And the only reason I booked that job was because I was the only teenager um, not lying on his resume when I said I could juggle. (laughs) That's funny. Um, Yeah, they needed it. They needed a teenage kid who could juggle uh, because one of the storylines that you know, week was one of the main characters wanted to open a school for the performing arts. So of course, in the eyes of, you know, whomever that, well, we got to have kids who juggle then what other performing arts could there be? Um, so yeah, they, they, I went in, it was a last minute audition and I went in to read for it only because my resume under special skills said juggling. And, uh, and there were, I think two other kids in there and it's, uh, I didn't bring anything to juggle. I kind of just showed up at the audition and the poor casting director was so unprepared for this. Um, and so one kid showed up with, I want to say like two lemons. <laughs> and you know, this is New York. This kid rode the subway there and wow. he showed up with two lemons and we were all like, oh, me and the other kid were like, what happened to the third one? He's like, lost it on the subway. You know, just fell out of my pocket, rolled away. And that was that. The rats got it. And uh, we're like, oh, wow. Okay. And so then the casting director walks out, sees the three of us. And she sees uh, the kid with the lemon. She's like, oh, my gosh, I'm so glad you brought something. But, oh, no, you only have two. He's like, yeah, sorry, Subway. She's like, that's okay. We'll find something. And so then um, the uh, that kid goes in to her office. And me and the other kid are just sort of sitting there. And he's just like, he's shaking. He's so nervous. And, uh, and we're just sitting there. And then a few seconds later, we just hear this thud. <laughs> like this just loud thud. Way louder than if a lemon had hit the ground. And finally, then we hear another thud. And then the kid comes out. And then she's like, okay, thank you. And then she calls the other kid. And he goes in there. And a couple seconds later, I hear another thud. And then finally I go in and I realize what's happened is she's taken the two lemons from the first kid and the only other like small round thing she had was a glass paperweight. 
And so that's what she told the first two kids. Okay, here, take this and the two lemons and juggle them. Like that's, I can tell you, that's not an easy thing to do to juggle items of different weights, especially one that's significantly heavier than the other two. That's insane. Uh, wow. It's really insane. And I, I, I'd been juggling maybe two or three years at that point, but okay. I wasn't an expert by any means. And I'm still not. Uh, but I was able to do it. Like I got a couple of revolutions with the heavy paperweights and the two lemons. And then I just stopped. She's like, okay, great, 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 great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, give the lemons back to those other kids. That other kid, I'll call you. I was like, okay. And uh, so that was it. I left and like an hour later, uh, you know, my manager's calling me. Hey, they like you. You got the part. You have to show up tomorrow morning, <laughs> 7 a.m. Okay, fine. So that was it. That's how I got that job. And I didn't have any lines, but, you know, it was certainly a fun set to be on. Sure. I'd never been on a proper set like that. I, you know, filmed a couple commercials, but not quite the same thing. And uh, yeah, that job didn't lead to anything. Uh, so, you know, but it was certainly nice to have a, a, a television show on my resume. So yeah. that might have helped. But the truth of the matter is that when I auditioned for Freaks and Geeks two years after that, um, that job was very special because uh, our casting director, Allison Jones, had basically been asked by Judd Apatow and Paul Feig, we don't want polished working actor kids. Yeah, I've heard we that story before. Kids without crazy resumes, uh, unknowns, they look like real kids. Yeah. And that is the kind of um, note that a casting director gets once every, I don't know, 20 years in all of casting. Like they don't get that note. So the fact that Allison Jones got that note the fact that that's who I was at the time that they were casting the show. That's one of those Malcolm Gladwell outlier things where, you know, it seems like, Oh, we all got on the show cause we were so talented. I mean, sure. We were all fine, but being, having the resumes we had at the point that that show sold with the note that Judd gave Allison, it was all of those things together that made that happen. Yeah, because none of you were who you are now at the time. And I've heard that story multiple times and uh, really such a career defining moment. So you have that show and you, again, have gone on to do a lot of other things. Was there a point in your career or what point was it where you kind of realized, OK, this is like happening and I'm actually starting to like experience some, some success as an actor, like, like I'm securely going to, I know the business is always unsecure. You know, it's always from job to job. Yeah. Some people say, but for you, what was the defining moment, Sam, where you knew, okay, I'm in this, this is it for me. And uh, right. I feel like I'm going to have a, 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 how I define a successful career. Well, you're very sweet for suggesting that. And the honest answer is I I've never felt that way. Okay. Um, this is a very fickle business, but I've been, wildly fortunate yeah and so for me if i had to pinpoint a, a real moment like that it was after freaks and geeks ended um the show ended and uh not long after the pilot or the the, the show was canceled i booked uh, a pilot i was actually offered two pilots that year so i felt like ooh, things are happening uh and i took one of them and unfortunately it did not get picked up and then that's when i sort of I don't want to say panic, but that's when I sort of stopped and went, okay, it's not pilot season. 
and I don't have a regular series that I'm on or anything. So now I live here. I was living in LA on my own at that point. I was 18 years old and I said, okay, um, I'm going to give myself six months. I'm going to stay here and I've got my agent. I've got my manager. I've got a great team looking out for me. I'm going to give myself six months. And if I don't book a job as an actor within six months, then I'll still stay here in LA, but I'll enroll in school. You know, I mean, I, I was certainly of college age and I, I'd looked into it and I was like, okay, I could go to like Pierce or any of the other local colleges. Didn't have to be anything fancy. Just, you know, learn a trade so that I wouldn't be, you know, destitute. Sure. And, uh, and so then I think it was maybe a month later I booked a job, maybe two months. And then when that job ended, I said, okay, clock starts again, six months. And then another month went by and I booked another job. And it kind of kept happening that way, especially in that age. I worked quite a bit, 18, 19, 20. Uh, and, and that sort of, it was a great confidence boost. You know, I was in a, a couple of movies. I was doing so many guest starring roles. Um, I was doing basically a pilot a year at that point, And unfortunately, none of them got picked up. But, it, you know, I felt very confident that I was certainly doing what I was meant to be doing. And in, in terms of success, the, the fact that I've been doing this now 23 years since Freaks and Geeks, and I've never had to get a real job, as they say, that I've I've always been able to make ends meet some years wonderfully, some years just enough as an actor. To me, that's the mark of success in a, a business with a 93% unemployment rate. <laughs> I love it. Uh, th- that's the number for sag after, by the way, at any given time, only 7% of the union is working. So, yeah. and that's what I tell young people who ask me for acting advice. I tell them that stat. I'm like, you want to get into a business with a 93% unemployment rate. So be prepared for bad news all the time. Yeah. I mean, the percentage of rate I've heard of people who come to LA versus the people who leave LA after six months, the people who leave is far higher than the people that come and stay. And I've heard that even before the pandemic. Well, Sam, I've been a fan for a long time, just all of the work that you've done and, I mean, just so many fun things. I want to wrap up with one last question about Inglorious Bastards. I'm very curious. That was such a great movie, and you did such a fantastic job. Do you have any memories or stories that stand out from working on that film? Because I understand working with Quentin and, and his style and everything is just so different than most if not all directors, um, you know, that are in the business. Uh, absolutely. I, I have many stories and I'll share with you one of my favorites. Um, so people often ask me like, what is it like to work with Quentin? Like, what is he like as a director? And so this is sort of the best example I can give uh, to explain that. Uh, so the very first scene where you really see the bastards, we're in that, that big ditch. Yeah. You know, we've got, Sergeant Ratchman, who's about to get beaten to death with the baseball bat. Uh, You know, the other two uh, Nazi soldiers are there. You know, I shoot one of them in the back as he runs away. Um, And so we shot that scene over the course of a week. Wow. We were down in that ditch. Like, we were there a long time. All day, every day, for over a week. It was a six-day week, in fact. So um, that 
that ditch was really hard to shoot in because if you want to do a wide shot, uh, Quentin and the cameras and everything had to be up on the top of it. And there really wasn't an easy way. It was a deep ditch to get from the bottom all the way up to the top where Quentin was. So uh, our, our first wide shot that he wanted to do of one of the portions of the scene, it's, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's after, um, how does it go? Oh no. So it's after, before Sergeant Ratchman gets called to his death. You know, uh, uh, Aldo Rain says, uh, you know, Hirschberg, why don't you send that Kraut sergeant over here? And so then, you know, I lean down into his ear and I say, I think that means you, Cupcake. <laughs> I remember that. And, you know, and, and he doesn't, and he doesn't budge. And so then I, uh, you know, I'm supposed to like, you know, kind of bash him with the back of my gun. And, you know, he still doesn't, I say when the, and then I grab, I'm supposed to grab him by his hair, yank him up to his feet. And he turns around and he looks at me and I look at his eye when the sergeant says, move, you move. Or the lieutenant says, move, you move. You know, and then we kind of have this little stare down and then he, you know, fixes himself, turns over, walks over. And then, you know, the rest of the scene, he doesn't give up the information. Donowitz comes out, beats him to death. So it's a wide shot, but it's kind of on that portion of us. And it's our first take doing that uh, in this, you know, shot. So it kind of just happened like I described it to you. Like, that's how it's written in the script, so that's how we shot it, you know? And that means you, Cupcake. He doesn't get up. I yank him to his feet, turns around, and the lieutenant says, move, you move. You know, and he stares me down. He walks over, and that's where the scene's supposed to end. And so we do that, and Quentin, from the very top, you know, screams, ah, cut, 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 cut. And then he comes running all the way down, takes him two minutes to get down there, and he comes over to me, and he pulls me away from Richard Samuel, the actor who played Sergeant Ratchman and all the other actors. And he goes, listen, man, listen, listen, listen. Okay, I need fire and intensity from you, man. Okay, can I curse here, by the way? You're fine, go ahead. Okay, great. He's like, listen, man, this guy is a fucking Nazi sergeant, man. <laughs> you are some puny fucking American Jew. The only thing stopping this guy from fucking ripping your head off is that he knows there's 10 guns on him and he'd die instantly if he did it. Like he couldn't even be sure that he could get you dead before they'd shoot him. He goes, so you want to provoke this guy. You are desperate to nudge him a little too far, to fucking call him the wrong thing, to fucking yank his hairs out. You want to piss him off. You want him to make a move. You want him to grab your fucking gun just so you can put a fucking hole in his chest and brag about it when you get home. He's like, I need to feel that. I was like, oh, dude, done. And then he walks over and he puts his arm around Richard Samuel, the other actor. And yeah. he walks away. And I don't hear a word he says to him. And so then as he's walking back over, he goes, okay, okay, don't talk to each other. Don't talk to each other. Stay in the moment. Stay in the moment. Okay, good, 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 good. And then he like goes all the way back up the ladder. We're standing there kind of silently just channeling this rage for two minutes. He gets back up there and action. And so then we go to do it a second time. And now this time there's fucking fire in my eyes. Man, when the captain says, move, you move, you know, and he doesn't respond. And I yank him up so hard. I actually do pull the man's hair out in my hand. I can feel it. And he turns around, his nostrils are flared, his eyes, he's leaning in at me. You know, as when the lieutenant says, move, you move. And I start poking him with the butt of my, or with the, the nose of my gun. 
and he's looking at me. He's just staring at me. He's not moving. And I just look at him and I say, what? Do it. I fucking dare you. Do it. And we have this like 30 second stare down. And he pulls himself away, you know, fixes himself, turns around, walks over. And then the scene, you know, happens. And then Quinn, cut, cut, that was perfect, that was perfect, that was perfect. And so then I walk over to Richard and I say, what did Quentin say to you? And he said, oh, he told me that if when I turn around and look at you and you poke me with the gun or you point out the gun pointed at me, that if I felt like I didn't believe you, that you would really shoot me, then I should try to grab the gun away from you. And then that would be the scene and Quentin would rewrite it and make that work. Wow. Such an amazing story. My God. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I love and our viewers and listeners love, just those behind the scenes moments. I mean, and and now I'm going to have to go back and rewatch it. Uh, because you should. And in fairness to you, most of that is cut. Um, so don't go looking for that. Uh, but you can you can visualize exactly where it would have been when you watch them. I love it. Well, this has been such a fun conversation. And again, I, I've just been a fan for a long time. I think when I saw you pop up on the last blockbuster, uh, that mm. documentary series, I mean, obviously being familiar with your other work, but when I saw that, I was like, I, I have to see what I can do to get Sam on the show because, um, you know, I would just love to talk to him because of the stories you were sharing there and the things you're talking about now. Uh, it's just awesome. Uh, but, um, if you're not familiar with Sam's work, it would be a shock. Crawl out from under the rock, everybody. Uh, we'll put an IMDb link uh, in our video and show notes. Uh, be sure to check out uh, all the great work he's done. Sam, thank you for your time, my friend. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for all the kind words, Brett. Happy to be here. That brings today's show to a close. Goodly do. Thanks for stopping by. If you enjoyed the episode, feel free to share it with a friend and subscribe. It's absolutely free. The views and opinions of the guests do not necessarily reflect those of the host. Autobots, roll out. Go home.